What a countercultural message that is to say it's not about me, but it's about Christ in me. What a, what a profoundly different message than the one that our world is constantly telling. Our world constantly is saying, it's all about you. Take care of you. Get an iPhone and get an iMac and do all the i stuff. And this says, no, it's not about me. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me and for his glory. What a beautiful song, a lot of rich, meaty words in all these songs today. Thank you, Aaron and team, for planning our worship today. It's like a Presbyterian church, John. This is very uh, <laughs> Presbyterian over here. And apparently no one told these Boy Scouts that Baptists don't sit in the front. So uh, this is great to have Boy Scouts up on the, the front row today. <laughs> All these normal Baptists are back there in the back today like, yeah, this is where we sit. <laughs> today we're going to continue our series in Galatians. And um, I'm so excited. It's such a rich, rich passage. We're in this middle section of Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, which are this deeply theological section where Paul has kind of set up his historical defense for his ministry. And now he's given us the meat, the, the theological foundations for his ministry. And last week we saw what God has done for us that we could never have done for ourselves. We, we talked about how God creates us into a new family, the children of Abraham, and we have a new mission, Abraham's mission, to go out and bless all the world, to be the conduit of God's blessing. And this month, we're just going to build on that theme, our TV's not working. Is that a, because of power thing? I bet Aaron could figure it out. Yeah, he's smarter than me. <laughs> That's, turn around to it. It's not there. It's on the big screens. New covenant, new family. We have a new covenant, therefore we have a new identity, a new family name, a new uh, family brothers and sisters around us. We have a new inheritance. All this changes because of the new covenant that we are going to celebrate in just a moment by partaking of the cup together that is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. I know families are complicated, okay? One of my pastoral counseling professors at Beeson Divinity School said all families have issues. She would always say that, all families have issues. We, we bring varying degrees of baggage uh, with us today from our families of origin. Some of you have more baggage than others, I know, but at its best, when family's working right, it can be a glimpse of heaven, can't it? It can be a little glimpse of heaven. I'm so thankful for many, many good childhood memories that, that I have from hanging out with my family. And it's not just, you know, the trips to Disney World or, or going out west or whatever. Sometimes it's just hanging out with, with mom and dad when they, you know, forget their adult responsibilities and when they just are carefree and, and they're just having fun. I remember one time the, the power was out when we got home uh, from some, uh, maybe it was church or something, we got home and there was no power and, and mom and dad were like, camp out! And we were like, this is the best! And they uh, got hot dogs out of the, the fridge and we built a, a wood-burning fire in our fireplace and we cooked hot dogs over the fire in the fireplace. We're like, this is the greatest thing ever! It was so much fun because my parents were cool about it and they were having fun and they just just let it, you know, go, which is not like my, my parents are pretty serious people. So it was super fun. 
And now Morgan and I, that we have three kids, one of them's sick, that's why they're not here today. Uh, we tried to remind ourselves and remind each other that sometimes we need to be fun dad and fun mom. Morgan will say, hey, do you want to be fun dad this afternoon? I'm like, oh yeah. She's like, take the kids on a hike. <laughs> or I'll say, uh, you know, you got to be fun mom. You know, May needs uh, some mom time. She's like, I'm going to take her to go get, you know, a, a treat or some coffee. Or on Friday when Morgan picks them up, she takes them to Granny White Market to go get candy after school. And that's fun mom and fun dad. Okay, compare those memories. I hope you have some memories with fun mom and, and fun dad. I know you do, Rachel. I know your dad well. And <laughs> I know several of you that, that have great memories from childhood. Compare those memories to maybe, do you have a memory of a bad babysitter? Do you have a, a memory of a mean babysitter that you just dreaded whenever they showed up? That mean babysitter is, is this kind of image that Paul is going to use today. I'm calling the outline, the mean babysitter versus fun mom, fun dad. Growing into the true children of God. My wife said she had some doozies growing up, uh, one of whom they locked in the basement. I'm not sure that whole story. I asked her if I could say that. She said I could. You'll have to ask Morgan for the, the details. I don't know the rest of it. But the idea, every kid would much, much, much rather prefer time with fun mom and fun dad than they would with the mean babysitter. Some, some kids, you know, the babysitter shows up and they just cling to their parents, don't go, don't leave us with the mean babysitter. That's sort of the, the idea that Paul is hinting at in our text for today. Because we crave that sense of security. We all crave that sense of belonging that comes when we are carefree in our parents' loving, safe care when they are with us and create that environment where we can just enjoy being with them and with one another, that's what we long for. It's so much better to have an attentive, loving, fun parent than a, a mean babysitter that you can't stand. What we're gonna see today is, is that as the true children of God, we are no longer under the mean babysitter, but we are true, full-grown heirs. So we've already been introduced to this idea of both Jews and Gentiles, very different ethnic backgrounds, becoming together the new family of Abraham. We've already seen that in chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The word for sons can mean sons and daughters. We know that. So those of faith. This is a bold claim. This is a very big deal because Paul is saying, that no longer are the ethnic nation of Jews God's special people, but now all who believe that God can do what he says he can do through Jesus, all who put their faith in that are now the covenant people of God, the special family. That's a big shift in who's in and who's out of God's family. You know, we have a middle schooler in our house, and you could not pay me enough to go back to middle school. I'm sorry for you middle schoolers here now. I know you're in it right now, but it's such a, a strange time in a person's life, and so much of it is trying to figure out who you are. Who are you? And, and a lot of that depends on who you hang out with and what kind of friends you have around you. Who's in and out in your friend group? Where do you belong? Where do you fit in? And the truth is, is that we all kind of do this. We, in our fallen nature, are, are quick to put up fences and, and boundaries and ostracize some people 
while welcoming certain people. We all tend to keep some people at arm's length while we let others in closely. Part of the reason the welcome that I gave this morning is like that is because I want to make sure that Woodmont is a place that is welcoming to all people who are weary and need rest, who are mourning and long for comfort, who fail and desire strength, and who sin and need a savior. That this church opens wide her doors for all of those people to come and hear the good news. But in our insecurity and in our pride, we like to control who's in and who's out. And what Paul's saying here in Galatians is that the gospel obliterates the old barriers that once kept people out of the family of God. And to start his argument, Paul goes back to the beginning. He's convinced that this gospel message of Jesus is not some new idea that God suddenly came up with. It's just the continuation of what God was already doing in the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of the plan that God had going all along. The new covenant of Jesus doesn't replace the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It completes it. So Paul feels compelled to answer these questions that inevitably arise whenever the gospel is properly taught. And one of those obvious questions is, hey, which one's better? Which one's better, the covenant promise made to Abraham or the covenant of the law that came through Moses? Which one's better? Which one's more important? Which one matters more? That's point number one on your outline. Covenant promise or covenant law? Which one is superior? And what, what matters most? Look at verses 15 and 16 in Galatians chapter 3. To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Messiah Christ. That's a big shift too. What Paul's saying here is a dramatic statement. He's using an example of a business contract. I know a lot of you business people out there understand this. To illustrate the concreteness of the covenant. That's point number A. The concreteness of the contract that he made with Abraham. He's saying nothing has annulled that. Nothing has made that irrelevant or taken it out of practice. And the promise that God would form a special people through Abraham's family is not annulled by Jesus. In fact, what, what Paul's saying is that that covenant with Abraham was always based on Jesus. Jesus doesn't annul it. He, he is the foundation of that promise. God's plans are not thwarted by Jesus. They are fulfilled by Jesus. They're resolute. You know, God's plans always always stand. So his plan to create a special people for himself through whom he would bless the world had two phases. Covenant people one, which were the, the ethnic nation of Israel, and then covenant people two on this side of the cross, which is us, the church, those who are Abraham's offspring by faith. So when God made the covenant with Abraham, he knew where all this was headed which is why he mentioned one special offspring who would come from Abraham's line. This is why Matthew and Luke traced the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham, right? He was the, the one that would come later and change everything. This would be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, 
who would transform not only the family of God, but he would transform all things. But again, Paul is dealing with these guys who come into these Galatian churches and they're just obsessed with the law. They can't let it go. They can't get past all these old covenant demands that were put on the people of God that have literally defined the people of God for centuries, for millennia. You know, God's people were those people that didn't eat pork. They were those weirdos who didn't eat uh, animals with a cloven hoof. They were those weirdos that circumcised all their boys on the eighth day. They were those very strange people, and that's, that was their identity. And, and in their minds, that's what made them special. That's what made them set apart. That's what made them holy and right with God. But even if they do believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, they still can't let go of that old covenant identity as Jews and the law that goes with it. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We know that that promise was given to Abraham not as an a, 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 uh, a obligation, as something for him to do, but as a promise of grace. Paul's showing us here the priority of the promise. That's point B on your outline. The priority of the promise, that it takes priority over the law because that Abrahamic covenant was a very different kind of covenant than the one that was given at Mount Sinai, what we call the Sinaitic covenant. That's a hard word to say and a hard word to spell. Moses received this long list of do's and don'ts there at Mount Sinai from God that were to set God's people apart as holy, but almost 500 years after, or before that, God had promised Abraham that he would bless the whole world through his offspring. That covenant required nothing on Abraham's part except to, to go to the promised land that God would show him. And even circumcision wasn't an obligation. It was a sign of the promise. It was just a signifier. It, this Abrahamic promise was a covenant of grace. It was all God acting, not Abraham acting. And Abraham, basically God said, look, just sit back and watch what I'm going to do. And no matter how hard Abraham tried to mess it up, remember like immediately after he obeys God and goes, then he gets scared and gives his wife to Pharaoh and says, that's my sister, take her, <laughs> and terrible stuff. Then he does it again later in chapter 20, does the same thing, gives his wife away again. How terrible. You know, all these, these, these things that we see Abraham, you know, failing in, but yet God is faithful despite Abraham's faithlessness. And then eventually we know that Abraham did uh, fulfill the, the man of faith role that he was called to fulfill. But what we see through these different covenants is that the Sinaitic covenant was all about following the rules. It was do this. But the Abrahamic covenant was about embracing this special relationship with God. It was simply accept this. It wasn't anything for him to do. And that leads us to the next section in your outline, the purpose of the law. Look at verses 19 and 20. 
Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Again, Abraham's promise is superior to the Sinaitic covenant. And Paul anticipates a few smart aleck questions once he's made that point that might you know, say, well, if you say that Abraham is all that matters and the, the Sinaitic covenant doesn't matter, then what's the point of the law, huh, Paul? Smart guy? And that's what Paul's response is. Why then the law? It's because it's added because of transgressions. What does that mean? Let's review really quickly where we've been. Paul's been making this argument since chapter 2 that everyone who comes into right standing with God does so not through the law, but by faith in what Jesus did. So he reminds these foolish Galatians, which some translations say idiotic Galatians, that they received the Holy Spirit, remember, not by being good enough, but by hearing through faith. And then he said that the law just shows us how far short we fall of God's standard of holiness and therefore condemns us. We saw a few weeks ago that the law just puts us under a curse, the curse of death. That's why Jesus was nailed to a tree for us, to become the curse for us and therefore give us life. Now Paul says, okay, let's deal with the law that you're so obsessed with. Why then the law? I'll tell you what the law is. I'm not saying that the law has no place in God's plan. I never said that. God did indeed give the law, and I'll tell you why. It was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? Well, first, the word added here in Greek literally means came in through a side road. Came in through a side road. It was added. The main avenue of God's work is done by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The law came in by a side road. It was added to what God is doing. Second, because of transgressions means to reveal how broken and flawed we actually are. This is very Presbyterian stuff, isn't it, John? <laughs> Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the chief and proper use of the law is basically, I'm paraphrasing, to make a terrible situation worse. The law takes our human weakness and frailty and just magnifies it into desperation. This is what Luther said, the law reveals sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. Luther was a you know, not one of those TV preachers who was trying to impress people. <laughs> he, he said this, it, it was meant to show us that we need saving until that time when the Savior himself would arrive. And the law came through a mediator, it says, through Moses, through a, a man who received the law and gave it to God's people. But the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace, comes directly from the high and holy God himself. It reminds me of like elementary school when, when one kid's mad at another kid and they're like, well, I'm going to send Johnny to tell Sally, tell her that her friends don't want to talk to her and they send messengers back and forth because they can't even be bothered to go directly to them, you know? That's kind of how the, the Sinaitic covenant was. God sent his message through 
Moses, through a prophet, a great prophet, but through a human emissary. But not only did he speak directly to Abraham, he showed up in the flesh to fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham. So that leads us to point B on your outline. Paul's going to flesh out the role of the law a little bit more in depth over the next five verses. And far from being pointless, Paul gives us three functions of the law. Three functions. First, in verse 21, he shows us that the law was given to show us that something more was needed. Something more was needed than what we had in the law. Read this with me in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul shows us that the law can't compete against the promise of God's grace because it can't do what grace does. That's not its function. Something's more needed to, to add to the law to make us right because the law clearly cannot do that. We need something beyond our own ability to be good. We need something beyond ourselves, beyond our own uh, righteousness, beyond our capability to fix what's wrong with us. The law just, again, reveals how broken we actually are. Second function, Paul says that the law was given in order to imprison and create a desire in us for freedom. To imprison not just us, but the world, and to create a desire for freedom. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The best commentary on Galatians is Romans, okay? If you want to understand what Paul's talking about, look at Romans. Romans chapter 8, that the world was in bondage to sin and, and long groaned for freedom and for redemption. That's the idea here, that sin, you know, the old uh, Christmas carol, long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That's the idea here. Paul used to think of the law as this great body of rules that made people holy and clean, and it fenced off those who were unclean. But now he sees the law not as a, a protective shield, not as a life-giving fence to those on the inside, but as a prison. It's a prison. Remember, the gospel isn't just that we are loved and accepted by God through Jesus, before that, we have to see the other side, that we're also more broken and more flawed and more desperate than we ever could have imagined. The law shows us the reality of our desperation so that we cry out for freedom, so that we long to be set free, so that we groan inwardly with all creation for deliverance. The law just shows us that reality. Finally, the third function of the law was to discipline us. Here's where we get to the mean babysitter. You thought we weren't going to get to that. We are. The mean babysitter, the law is to discipline us until we grow up. It's to discipline in order to grow us up to maturity into a full-fledged member of God's family. Look at verses 24 and 25. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came 
The word for guardian is unlike any other word. It's the Greek word paedagogos, paedagogos. It, there's no good translation. I think the King James says schoolmaster. And so some people read that and they say, oh, the law is like an educator that teaches us things. That's not the idea. A schoolmaster back then was the kind that wrapped your knuckles. Ron Landis went to Catholic school in New Jersey. And I said, did they really hit your knuckles with rulers? He said, all the time. Totally. I was like, no way. That's such a stereotype. They actually did that. That's the idea here is a mean disciplinarian. Something that, that's like a, a, a tutor who's very, very harsh. The law was our paedagogos until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a mean babysitter, a paedagogos, a guardian. Keep going. Oh, that's it for 25. That's it. So the law was our guardian, our paedagogos. Paul moves from thinking of the law as a jailer who imprisons us to thinking of the law as a mean babysitter. This paedagogos in these families that could afford it, it was kind of like what you have first when the baby was born, they had a wet nurse, then they had a nanny, and then after, you know, about age six or so, they would get rid of the nanny and have a paedagogos who was supposed to train the kid in like social etiquette and, uh, you know, culture and uh, teach them things besides reading and writing and arithmetic, but also uh, how to function in society. Plutarch, the ancient philosopher, said that a paedagogos taught to, quote, walk in the public streets with lowered head, to sit in such and such a posture, in such and such a way to wear their cloaks. <laughs> the paedagogos provided round-the-clock protection and instruction to these, you know, preteen kids, kind of like we have Brad in our house right now, these preteen kids in, that were in their care. And normally, I mean, like me, the only way that I can see to, to correct preteens is through corporal punishment. <laughs> That's what the Patagagas did. They would carry a stick, a lot of them, caning. That's what this, this is very accepted practice back then. Whenever the kid got out of line or their posture wasn't great or something, whack, they'd hit them. They would just beat them continuously. There's all kinds of stories of Patagagas doing these, these terrible things to these kids. So again, guardian is not a good translation either. The, the image is like the meanest babysitter you could possibly imagine. And that babysitter makes us long for the day when we're old enough to, to be with mom and dad in a way where we're trusted and where we're not needing that kind of correction any longer. We want to be free to be with our parents in a way that's loving and carefree. Paul says we had a paedagogos until Christ came. Jesus changes everything. Again, Martin Luther pointed out the difference between the mean babysitter and the grace of Jesus in his commentary on, on this passage. He says, here, one must say, stop, law. Put your stick down. You've caused enough terror and sorrow. Then let the law withdraw, for it was indeed added for the sake of disclosing and increasing transgressions, but only until the point when the offspring would come. Once he's present, let the law stop disclosing transgressions and terrifying. Let it surrender its realm to another, that is, to the blessed offspring, Christ. He has gracious lips with which he does not accuse and terrify, but speaks better things than the law, namely grace, peace, forgiveness of sins, 
and victory over sin and death. That's good news. That's gospel. That's gospel message. We've gone from being under the care and tutelage of the mean babysitter who terrified us to being free, to being full-grown heirs who can sit and enjoy being with our parents. That leads to our final point about the new family of the promise, the new family of the promise. This is Paul building on this idea of us being Abraham's children now. Verse uh, 26 through 29, let's read these verses. For in Christ Jesus, you are all, that's an important word, sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What a powerful, powerful, provocative passage. Verse 26 is such a game changer. The law is no longer our babysitter. We don't need a babysitter because we are full grown sons and daughters, heirs of the promise made to Abraham. And then verse 26 says, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons and daughters of God. By faith, you're now fully adopted into this new family with a new last name and new brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas. And not just any family, the most special family on earth, the family of God. And verse 27 shows us it's the Christian sacrament of baptism. I'm using that word sacrament. A lot of Baptists don't use that word, but I think it's an outward expression of an inward reality of grace in us. Baptism serves as a powerful example of what has happened to us now. Our baptism is a public witness to the church that we've shed our old selves and put on Christ. But then verse 28 just ramps up Paul's revolutionary gospel teaching. In our deeply divided culture, we stand boldly with Paul and proclaim all Christians are one in Christ Jesus. We have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And to illustrate this, Paul takes three fundamental divisions in our culture and in society. Nothing has changed. He takes ethnicity, economic capacity, and gender, and says they no longer separate us as believers. Race, money, and sex are not evil in themselves, but they've been so corrupted by sin that our enemy uses them to tear families apart. He uses them to tear faith families apart, as we know too. But they no longer hold power over us. They don't condemn us any longer. They don't control us. <clears throat> A scholar, German guy, Gerhard Ebeling, in his commentary, says the boundaries of baptism now define the existence of a place in the world where things are different. Jews and Gentiles share the same table. Shocking. Slave and free citizens are treated equally as brothers and sisters. Shocking. Women are accorded a respect that's more substantial than a merely outward and sometimes two-edged 
quality. Paul's speaking into a deeply patriarchal culture. Men in Greek culture at this time, the Hellenistic people, I'm not talking about Jews, I'm talking about Gentiles, would regularly thank the gods for making them sophisticated Greeks and not barbarians. They would thank them for making them citizens and not slaves, and they would thank them for making them men and not women. We actually have written prayers from Jewish scholars at this time that also prayed to Yahweh, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who hast not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou who has not made me a slave, and blessed art thou who hast not made me a woman. I wanna be careful to avoid pride and, and boasting here, but I'm so thankful to be a part of a church family that long before my time has valued the contribution of women in all kinds of roles at this church since 1986 when Bobby Dunn became our first female deacon here on our, our deacon board as a servant leader in our church. And our small groups that value the contributions of women that are gifted and called by God to exposit scripture that do so, that use those gifts in those ways. I'm so thankful that women like Donna Yuri and, and Leslie Love last week can pray over us and lead us in prayer as, as shepherds and, and deacons in our church body. We are certainly much better because of the, the women that serve on our committees and our uh, leadership roles here in our church as well. We have a, a female vice chair of deacons right now, and Sandy Morabito was chair a couple years ago uh, as well. We are a better church because of that plurality of voices, okay? I hope you just know that and understand that. I'm very grateful. Obviously, that can be a touchy subject. And no, I don't think that Paul is calling for the elimination of these categories. We still have our distinctives, but don't, you know, this, this verse has been taken out of context and used to justify some really terrible things. So don't miss the point of what Paul is saying. What he is saying is there's a unity in the body of Christ and an equality of access to salvation through faith in Jesus that's so profound that it goes beyond basic differences. Jesus has risen from the dead and defeated these powers that used to wreak havoc on us. Timothy George in his commentary says, the call of the gospel is radically egalitarian and completely universal. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And then the fulfillment of that passage, Revelation chapter 22, whoever wishes, let them take the free gift of the water of life. We still have our distinctions, right? We still live in a, a broken world. We still feel the tensions of, uh, and the forces uh, around us, but we as Christians have been set free from racism, materialism, and sexism. Let's don't fall back into a pattern of the world. Let's don't fall back into a corrupted pattern. I love how George puts it. This happened not through assimilation to the politically correct agenda of the world around us, but it happened rather through the inner transformation and liberation brought about through the sending of God's Holy Spirit into our hearts. So maybe today you realize you've been beat up, you've been mistreated by the mean babysitter for too long. Maybe you're living in fear 
of not being good enough, of not being able to, to follow all the rules just right, God invites you to live in the freedom that comes, out, comes from hanging with fun dad. God invites you for a day with fun dad. Not just a day, but a lifetime, and then eternal life with fun dad. Maybe you, you've been so jaded by racism and by misogyny in our, our world, and you say, I, I can't be a part of a church because I've seen Christians who have propagated those evils in our world. We say we repent of those evils. The Southern Baptist Convention has deep roots in, in racism. We've said before that we repent of those attitudes and we long to move forward in the unity of the gospel and to model for the world what true hope and healing and reconciliation looks like. We are ambassadors of reconciliation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, and we long to live that way. Maybe today you need to repent of materialism, of, of social classism. Maybe you need to repent of sexism and sexist attitudes that have no place in the gospel. Let's live fully into our family identity as the people of God, and let's live out the purpose that God has for us to be a conduit of his blessing to the entire world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the message of scripture. Even when it's difficult, even when it's complicated, God, you give us this message of, of grace that is for all people, and it explodes our categories of what culture says around us. God, you constantly are challenging the way we think because the way we think leads to death. It's futile. God, we pray that you would help us not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we would be transformed the renewing of our minds. God, we thank you for the ways that you are breaking down walls in your body. We thank you that there is hope moving forward, that all the, the divisions of politics and, and racism in this country, that we as Christians have resources to combat those divisions. We have the only resource that can fully heal and repair these deep fissures that have been exposed over the last five years or so. Lord, we pray that you would help us as Christians not to align ourselves with some political agenda of this world, but that we would align ourselves with the gospel so fully that it would transform us from the inside out, that we would come to know you as fun dad so intimately that we would be able to live into the full identity of full-grown children of you, the high and holy living God. We know this is only possible because of Jesus and what he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.